For many years, the CCIE has been the gold standard of certifications among network engineers. And recently, there has been a backlash against the cert by some as Cisco has taken heat for increased pricing, an excessively difficult routing and switching written qualification exam, and a tendency towards a Cisco-centric way of looking at networking. And so the question we raise today is the CCIE fading in value. Uh, I'm Ethan Banks at EC Banks on Twitter, and this is a interesting personal question for me as I've been a CCIE since 2008 and have followed the program closely uh, over the years. Our, our guest today, Dustin Baer, a CCIE candidate who's been studying more than 20 hours a week for the CCIE, and Eman Condi, who's been recruiting CCIE talent uh, since 1995. And I've known Eman uh, off and on for, gosh, Eman, I suppose about uh, maybe 10 years almost that we've known each other, or had some kind of contact. I used to write for your CCIE flyer once in a while. You're, and you're still doing CCIE uh, kind of recruiting and talent work, aren't you? Yeah, actually, I sort of got real lucky and, and created a uh, niche market um, that needed to be fed uh, once I discovered it. But uh, you and I bumped into each other back in 2007, if I'm not mistaken. I think that's uh, right. When, yeah. when you were preparing for your lab, isn't that correct? That sounds about right, yeah. And then, uh, you know, along the way, I ended up getting my CCIE, and uh, and then you had the CCIE flyer publication I was writing for for a little bit. And, uh, and yeah, you've just kind of been in my feeds for a long time now as I see uh, you're still doing the CCIE agent thing. Yeah, actually, the CCIE flyer has been around for a long time. Actually, uh, I started it around 2008 when it was just an email uh, that I was sending out to a distribution and then I got the idea that eh, that was kind of old-fashioned, so uh, I went with the uh, CCIE Flyer blog, and uh, that's turned out pretty good. I actually have very good readership there, and I've kind of enjoyed the company of many folks like yourself. In fact, it's, it's hard to, for me to go to uh, many events at all where I don't bump into somebody who's actually read uh, the CCIE Flyer or mm-hmm. who, who hasn't spoken with me, and it's because of folks like yourself that I really owe uh, you know, a debt of gratitude to because if it wasn't for you guys uh, helping me build my reputation and for me staying out of jail, um, <laughs> you know, it, it probably wouldn't have become my mainstay the way it has. But hey, uh, I'm loving it. <laughs> it, it. It's funny what you say about the, uh, you know, ah, I did an email and that was old fashioned. So I went to the blog thing. Well, everything old is new again and trend, uh, newsletters are all the rage. They're the trendy hot <laughs> thing to be doing. And uh, yeah, we're running multiple newsletters at Packet Pushers now with uh, hundreds or thousands of subscribers, depending on what it is. It's kind of it's kind of funny the way the world works. Anyway, well, uh, yeah. well, Dustin, I, let, let, let's start with you. I wanted to get into this idea here: is the CCIE fading in value? And and maybe since you're actively pursuing the cert, what what motivated you to start down the CCIE path? Uh, thanks, Ethan. Yeah, it pretty much started for me. I mean, the whole journey down the the certification path started, I mean, it's been almost 10 years since I uh, first got my CCNA. Uh, back then, it wasn't even an, a routing and switching. It was just the basic CCNA and then continued on to get my CCNP about five years later. And as I got my feet more wet into uh, the network and into into my job and into, I, and, and into finding that niche that I actually enjoyed, I really started to... Um, want to pursue the knowledge and pursue the CCIE just because I always saw it as one of those goals to achieve because everybody I'd see who'd had one was somebody who was fairly, had a good reputation, was somebody who I looked up to uh, in the industry. 
So I think that's probably what first got me motivated. And then, of course, there's always the monetary stuff that went along with that because when I when I started into in the network engineering field, I was my salary was nowhere near what I'd see these giant numbers that places like uh, Global Knowledge or other training partners would throw out and say, "Oh yeah, if you have your CCIE, you can start at one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year," yeah. and and things like that. I mean, when when you see those. And you're and you're pretty green in the industry. You go, oh well, all I need to do is get this this certification, and I can I can make six figures a year right away. And over time, I've learned that that's not necessarily the case. That it's not just getting the certification. It's there's other things that go along with it. And um, the journey has been a little bit longer for me, just because um, I first really started pursuing it actively back in 2013, and uh, I had some. Some things went on in my personal life that really got me sidetracked, and I basically stopped the pr- the process. I I complete I I passed the the version four lab back in December of 2013, and then I pretty much had to put my studies on hold. And then this last year, uh, back in I would say probably about this time frame last year, I really decided that it was a it was a goal that I wanted to start pursuing again, and I think it just had to do for me at least with more of a wanting to finish what I had started in my mind, which was getting that CCIE, getting that number, and then uh, developing a study plan, talking to my wife, which was very important. And if you're if you're married or in in some kind of relationship, you need to definitely. I know everybody who's gone down this will also recommend if you start studying for something like the CCIE or any certification that's this intense that you definitely communicate that and get get something between you before you go down that road and that's uh, assuming you want to stay in the relationship yeah exactly exactly that that is true because because you i mean the amount of time that it has taken away from any kind from my um personal life and from also from just being spending time with my wife and we have a, a son who's a little over a year old now and it does take away from that and you have to have somebody who's understanding if I could go back and turn and turn the clock back, I would have done this all when I was single and didn't have any other responsibilities because it would have been a lot easier to dedicate the time. But unfortunately, I mean, if you're lucky enough to be in that situation, go for it because time constraints in life definitely uh, take over as you insert more things into it. But in the end, I think it's something that I've really, my, my, my viewpoint, my view on the CCIE process has definitely evolved over time. Hmm. Well, Eman, I want to uh, kick a question over to you that, um, that I was thinking of when Dustin was talking about money at some point along there. Yeah. You know, the trainers would throw out the big six figure salaries and, uh, and so on. And as you're, you're in that business, do you have a sense of what, uh, folks who are CCIE holders, currently earn what a, what a rough range is and maybe geographically how that might vary i want to go back a little bit to a comment that dustin made mm-hmm. um i'm involved in, as a mentor with a lot of ccies as they're going through the process and uh, they'll reach out to me as they go along i think the folks that are the most successful in achieving it in in the fewest tries are actually those who are stable in a family life Um, I know a lot of people want to think that it's a disruptive element, and it may very well be. But when when you're settled and things are secure, 
it seems like those folks are actually the guys that are more successful at it. But let me go back to your question now. Um, you know, the average CCIE, depending on, on um, it depends a lot on geography for the kinds of salaries that we're talking about. Um, if you're living in a, a major population center in, in any country, the wages are higher, so is the cost of living. But um, if you take it to the U.S., uh, I, I would say the average CCIE is in the 120 to 150K range. And that would encompass probably 75 to 80% of the CCIEs. Now, there are a bunch that are above that, but it depends on what that additional 20% are doing. Uh, typically, if you're a CCIE and you've got other certs that contribute to your professional ability to deliver, uh, let's say, you know, uh, JNCIE or you've got uh, right now Palo Alto is all the rage or if you're a cloud guy or a data center guy and you actually have AWS, I mean, there's a lot of things that can get you a little bit more, you know, in your wallet. But I, I've been doing a lot of placements in the U.S. and I average 150K per placement in the U.S. Hmm. And my client base, though, um, puts value in the certification. If you go get your CCIE and then you work for a hospital or you work for an insurance company, um, they have no uh, value placed on that CCIE other than not having to interview you <laughs> at the same level that uh, somebody who was at a channel partner could because they can't. Um, but a channel partner needs that CCIE associated with their company. You are a, um, when you're working for one of them, you're doing delivery, maybe you're doing pre-sales, um, architect design. Um, you're someone who generates revenue for, for them. So in general, they pay a bit higher than uh, working directly for some organization. It's not only the revenue generation, it's also the discounts you get with Cisco. Uh, last I knew as far as how the partner program worked to maintain a particular level, get a particular uh, discount level on equipment. You needed to have X number of uh, CCIEs or whatever it is on staff to maintain that particular partner level. And you know something, though, that also says something about the value when you bring up the partners. Um, you know, there's about, I would say, 45 to 48,000 active CCIEs on the planet. And there are about 30,000 Cisco resellers. Now, if you do the math, it would be impossible for all of them to be gold partners. And to be a gold partner, you do need four CCIEs. So there's a supply and the band, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, part of this too. You think there's that many active ones, 40 to 45,000? Yes, I do. Um, I have in my database around 40,000. Mm. So I, I'm, I'm not foolish enough to think that I've got them all, but I, uh, over the past 12 years, I've never thrown away a resume or an email from a CCIE. I've got, um, the, the ability to reach out and successfully contact folks when I'm needing them for particular customers, but I'd be willing to bet, you know, 40,000 bottom end. Mm. Dustin, you've been studying, um, you're, you're knee deep in prep for, uh, for the IE. And do you think that the, the program has gotten to be Cisco centric, which is a, a complaint that I've heard from some folks, you know, I mean, and it may vary between tracks. 
as far as service provider, routing and switching, uh, security or whatever. As far as the routing and switching, I think that Cisco's actually, um, as far as the lab aspect, it's fair. I mean, it's obviously going to be Cisco centric because it's a Cisco exam and they want to test and you're being tested on Cisco equipment or in a Cisco lab environment. But I think that the, the biggest benefit is that, I mean, what you're learning is and what you're having to apply is our, our standards. They may be the syntax that you may be and the way that it's done in the Cisco architecture may be slightly different than Juniper or Brocade or whatever. I mean, but the the actual for the most part the layer two layer three those kinds of things i mean those are standards based for the most part so you do have when especially with the routing and switching because that one is so focused on layer three which i mean if you if you know the basics of how layer three works if you know how it works in a cisco environment at that ccie level I think you can translate that after learning how another vendor may do it. So, I mean, yes, it's Cisco centric as far as the exam, but I would say that that doesn't necessarily mean that the knowledge that you're gaining from that can't be translated very quickly into, into another environment, into another vendor environment. And also another thing that I know that Cisco has been doing is with, at least with the written is uh, incorporating the evolving technologies and really trying to, I, I, I took the, the V5 one written um, a couple times. I failed it the first time back in November and then I did pass it uh, back in December and it did have the evolving technologies section on it, which focuses, uh, which uh, surprisingly was completely not Cisco focused as far as um, oh. as far as what I found on it. I mean, it was very much uh, vendor agnostic as far as the questioning. It was very broad, and I don't know if that's something that Cisco will rein in in the future. But the the types of things that you're expected to know for that section, as far as uh, SDN and all those sorts of things, are very broad subjects. Uh, they haven't really incorporated any of that into the uh, the uh, routing and switching lab blueprint yet. I've heard rumors that there's going to be incorporations in the future. I don't know on if it's going to be all the tracks in the lab, or I think they're trying to move to more of a unified blueprint between the written and the lab as well. So if it's on the written, it'll be on the lab, which I think is also a very important thing because right now learning ISIS for the written and then going to the lab and there's absolutely no ISIS seems useless to me and seems pointless. It seems like they, they need to get some kind of unification between the two. So you're not just trying to learn the, the, what you need to pass for the written. And then you can just go, well, I don't, I can throw this out the window because I don't need to learn it for the lab right now. I think you, there needs to be carryover so you can incorporate it into both sides. That's interesting that the emerging technologies is not Cisco specific. So that that's actually encouraging to me because what I would have expected that section to be is let's talk about Cisco ACI and let's talk about some of the other cool products that Cisco's got in the space, like uh, Tetration maybe. Uh, so getting into telemetry, how telemetry is done on the Nexus 9000, you know, maybe some things that are pretty bleeding edge that not too many customers are taking advantage of yet, but that are very likely going to be uh, important in the future, you know, SDN controllers, Cisco's got a number of flavors of them. Um, you know, APIC EM, for example, uh, you know, being one, and maybe they would uh, go down that road. So if they're not, you know, and it's more, you know, as you put it, more, uh, you know, industry, uh, broad, uh, broadly applicable, not Cisco specific, that's, that's a good thing. Maybe the rumors are not, um, 
I don't know. You know, part of this is, is my own experience too. I took the written exam 5.0, not 5. I hear 5.1 is far better than 5.0 was. It, it is far better. I found 5.0 inscrutable, just, just impossible to get my brain around because it was so, all these obtuse, weird little corners that they were, uh, you know, trying to go down. And, and I found myself, whereas in the past when I've taken my written recertification exams, I've always, if I failed the first time, I'd always be like, okay, I failed it, but I know what I need to do so that I can pass it. That one, I walked out going, I have no idea. I don't know what to do actually. <laughs> so it's good that five, one is better. And, uh, and yeah, you had the same experience. Yeah. That's how I was with five. One. I mean, with five, Oh, I, uh, I took it a couple of years, uh, at Cisco live, just the free one, but I didn't do any real prep work. It was more of just to see what it was. And I think the the takeaway that everybody that I've talked to yourself included has been the five Oh written was an absolute mess and five one. It seems to be back to being written in a structure. That's a lot more similar to how it was back in hmm. uh, version four. When I took it as far as it, it didn't seem like they were sending, they were giving you questions that had asked you for two answers and three of them were completely right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh boy. Uh, Amy, a question for you. Um, you again, as we talked openly show, you've been dealing with CCIE placement for a long time. And as long as I've known you, um, has the demand for CCIEs changed much over the last decade? The thing that has changed is expecting a CCIE to be able to do and to know a lot more. The industry demand surprisingly comes heavily from Cisco's competitors though and more and more you know you know HP folks you know HPE um, those resellers and when they're hiring someone that they want to become an expert in some area um, you know whether it's security route switch you know any of their other offerings uh, these folks are looking for a baseline of individuals that are starting with their CCIE what you were saying earlier about a lot of the skills, are, are applicable to other vendors is very true. But the thing that happens the most is there's a, you know, a dip and rise in demands in different areas. Right now, probably the hottest thing for me is security, but that happens a few times, you know, or has happened a few times over the past couple of years where, you know, it was collaboration or before that it was voice and video. And then um, surprisingly, you know, it came back around to some SP for a little bit there. I guess a lot of the, um, you know, ISP technologies that the SP folks have, well, you know, came to light. Um, it shifts, shifts and turns uh, with whatever's hot out there. Um, right now, um, I've got a number of wireless CCIE positions uh, that are open and these resellers, because they want their specialization in order to sell those Cisco technologies, um, they require that certification. And gosh, I'd be surprised if there's more than a thousand of them guys around. Mm. Um, so, you know, it shifts. It shifts and turns. Uh, the demand is there and it's going to stay. I mean, this is not a certification that's on the wane. You mentioned you, you've got a huge database of, uh, of CCIEs that you've collected over the years, folks you've communicated with, and you keep track of um, you know, those names and so on. Now, in your opinion, do you think the candidate pool is getting uh, bigger or smaller? In other words, are there more CCIEs out there than there were or, uh, or fewer? This brings me to another discussion point. A CCIE certification in someone's hands doesn't mean 
that they're an expert. The pool of actual experts has always been about the same. Um, but the, there's, a, there's a problem with the quality of individuals who have earned their IEs, uh, and, and it creates a, an issue when I'm interviewing them or vetting them for my clients and discovering that some of the basics are not there or that uh, where they um, trained, or, uh, you know, are, I don't want to use this, this is going to go crazy, that they're dumpers <laughs> <Yeah>. or, <laughs> or something like that. So the pool of actual experts has always maintained about the same population, mm. while those other lesser qualified who are holding their IEs has grown a lot. That's, so that's interesting. You go through a, a vetting process to make sure they know what's what. So you're less of a recruiter trying to find a bag of meat and stick them in a chair and get a check <laughs> and yes. you know more about properly matching that person with the company you're representing. You know, I work as an agent. I truly believe the way I function is more like a sports agent or a talent scout in the movies, you know, for movie stars. What I'm doing is I advocate for my candidates. My clients actually know that if they didn't give them the home they promised, I can move them on. Uh, so it becomes their challenge to ensure they don't talk to me again. <laughs> but uh, but what happens here in this industry is that the really talented individuals will find themselves at the top of the salary scale and they'll hunker down. So it becomes a challenge then to sort through all the rest and find those that are promising and then help clients realize what they've uncovered in an individual. But I've been in IT for about 45 years, maybe longer. I've, I was close to the Big Bang when it happened. Uh, and and everything started going on from then. I've had my hands on so much technology over the years. I don't know if you bleep people out, but I know a bullshitter when I see one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, Dustin, um, let, let's say you end up earning your digits and you get them. How do you expect that to impact your career? I mean, Eman's made a lot of you know, comments here about the folks that he represents and the kind of the, the gigs he settles them into. So uh, do, do you have any specific expectations? I would say that I don't really have any expectations anymore at this point in my career, mainly because I've, I, I've been with the same company, and this is probably something that's very rare in these days. I've been with the same company for 16, almost 17 years now. I work for a uh, internet service provider here in the Midwest. I'm in South Dakota, and there's not a huge amount of IT where I live. And I mean, there's, there is a good amount, but I mean, compared to... Uh, Chicago or Los Angeles or San Jose or something like that. I mean, what you're going to be able to get as far as salary and compensation is not going to be comparable to those areas. As far as cost of living, though, it's very low. But I would say that the biggest thing for me that um, the, the motivating factor for me is it has changed. It used to be about, oh, well, if I get this, I can start applying for jobs with Cisco or look for jobs where I could still um, possibly work from work where I uh, from home and stay here, but work for a larger company and get this large uh, amount of money. But it's really changed for me. And I think it's actually helped me to not focus on what I can get by having this as far as compensation or a better position at work or a higher position where I am, but to really focus on this is for me becoming more about 
what can I gain as, as far as an individual, as far as my knowledge, as far as, um, I've been able to use a lot of resources. Um, one thing I, I didn't even mention before is there's, uh, is I've been involved in study groups online and with people all over, um, the, the world. And that has introduced me and, and, and it opens up a lot of, uh, contacts as well. And a lot of, and a lot of other things. I really don't expect a huge jump in salary or position where I am. I'm, I'm fortunately, I'm, I'm really happy with both of those aspects right now, but I think that having the CCIE also does give me the flexibility because you never know if the company that you're working for is going to get bought out and everybody's going to get laid off tomorrow too. So I think it, it helps put, it helps put you in a better position. So if you have to either look for another job because you're wanting to, or because you have to, because you're unemployed, it puts you in a better position to get ahead of people who may not have that certification. Um, if you would have asked me that same question 10 years ago, it would have been, I want more, I, I expect it to get me more money in a better, in a better job, but I'm more mid career right now. So it's a little different for me than it is for probably other people who might be going for this, but I don't even, I, I'd almost be interested if there was a survey and it said, what or what age were you or what point are you adding your career um, when you started or when you obtained your CCI? Because I think that having one mid-career, I think it's helped me because I've I've been able to develop those other aspects that that uh, Iman talked about as far as there's a lot more that goes along with being a good employee, with being somebody who's marketable than just having a CCIE. There's a lot of other things. Being somebody who can collaborate with others, who can work with others, learning those those soft skills as far as work, if you're in a customer-facing role that the CCIE isn't going to teach you, just experience and working in the industry is. Yeah, you know something? Um, the CCIE is more uh, should be treated more as an affirmation or confirmation of a level in your career. Um, the fact, though, uh, that um, you can't have job security from an employer, I have found that folks that are holding an active CCIE have found job security in their own way because you can move from job to job if necessary because the CCIE will open doors for you. So I think of it also as a way of creating job security. Absolutely. I yeah, would agree. I, yeah, I agree with that as well. And going back 10 years to why I embarked on it, it wasn't for more money. I was pretty sure I wasn't going to see any more of that. Uh, I had a supportive <laughs> employer, but not one that said, yes, if you get this, we're going to dangle this golden carrot in front of you. No, it wasn't that. <laughs> it, I just really felt like I want to take my knowledge to the next level. So Dustin, I identify very much with what you're saying there. Uh, and then the job security was a thing too. I was concerned, you know, what happens when in, in a very volatile world, I'd, I'd already been in a situation where I'd worked for a startup that blew up and I got laid off. Uh, I was, I had done some work at a consulting firm that didn't go well because the owner was trying to drive the company to the ground so he could retire. And, uh, I was like, I didn't feel secure in the marketplace and I wanted to bolster my chances of my resume rising to the top. And uh, I, I saw the CCA as one way that I could do that should I find myself in that position again. Ironically, having getting, gotten the CCIE, you know, since that point, I never had any trouble. Um, it, was, it was always, please don't leave. Don't go anywhere else. You know, no, it was, it was no danger of getting laid <laughs> off. That was for sure. Uh, it was yes. always the other way, the other way around where they didn't want me to go anywhere. 
Um, so, okay. Now guys, let's talk about some market realities here. Um, I, in my role at packet pushes, one of the things I try to keep up with are, are trends and uh, percentages, what, um, players in the market are selling what to whom and, uh, who's gaining market share, who's losing and so on. Now, without a doubt, Cisco is still the beast, right? They are still the dominant player in many different networking markets and in markets that they've grown into over the years where it's not just networking, it's it's other stuff like uh, like with their UCS. And of course, they've been doing voice for a long time. They're still a very big player there, et cetera. Um, but they are losing some of the market share that they had. Um, if you look at the trends, not a lot, and it's just a few percentage points here and there, and it varies quarter by quarter and what specific market you're looking at. Um, some people, some companies are going elsewhere. You know, they're buying from you know, Juniper, or maybe if they're a hyperscale, maybe they're going uh, open source and white box. Uh, do, do you guys think this tells us anything about uh, you know long-term trends in networking that maybe gives you some different perspective about uh, about Cisco as a company or you know the IE as a certification? Dustin, maybe you're you're closest to that and have some thoughts. You know, as far as um, where I work, I mean, we are. We're, we're, we're basically a Cisco shop. I mean, and I know that that's usually in the industry, that's anymore becoming the exception rather than the rule. I mean, if you look 10, 15 years ago, Cisco was the dominant player, like you said, and they are losing share. But I think that's just a, I think that's just a normal part of how the markets change, especially in this area. I mean, you've got certain companies who will come out and really focus and nail in on on one area and Cisco seems to be the we're going to focus on everything and try to be the leader in everything and that's not always going to happen i mean there are going to be areas where Cisco isn't going to be the number 1 or number 2 vendor they may be the number 3 or number 4 but i don't think that that devalues the CCIE at least right now and i don't foresee it anytime soon just because Again, it's it's such a translatable certification um, mm-hmm. that you can really that you can really bring those skills into any vendor. You can really bring them into any environment for the most part. Now, yeah, and, and actually, you've made that point, and I think that's a, a good point to drill into for just a minute. But I think because you're talking about you know, layer two skills and how to provision VLANs and what uh, you know what a tagged or trunked line and how that works and what how BGP operates and uh, uh, OSPF and OSPF multi-area design and all these sorts of things that you're going to get going through a CCIE program, those principles you pick up and carry with you because they're industry standard. And sure, the configuration stanzas may look similar or may look radically different depending on the platform you're on. Junos looks way different than iOS. Uh, HP may look kind of more similar. Oh, Avaya. I mean, I don't know how to describe that configuration at all. It's very <laughs> odd anyway. Um, but the, the point is you, you end up with a skill of knowing I'm trying to accomplish X. I need a BGP topology that looks like these autonomous systems and this route reflector and, you know, and so on. And you can sketch it out. And then the details are in, well, what are the commands I need to do to execute this and then prove that I built it right? Sure, from the CCIE perspective, you're going to learn how to do those commands on those Cisco platforms, but the thing you drew on the whiteboard and that you understand how it's supposed to work and what you meant by that, you just pick that up and carry that over to the Junos boxes. Yep. Um, so just, just, I'm sorry for interrupting you. I just wanted to really underscore that point because it's, it's kind of a big deal. Yeah. 
And, and, and I absolutely agree. And I think that, I think that there's always going to be new competition and there's going to be new things that pop, new vendors who may pop up or existing vendors who come up with new ways of doing things. And I think that that's a, that's a great thing for our industry because iron, I mean, like they say, iron sharpens iron. I mean, you need other people challenging your position. And I think Cisco needs those, com- that, that competition to motivate them to continue to, innovate in the industry. I mean, that that's what it drives innovation. I mean, if, if Cisco was the only company out there, they could completely control the, the pace at which things evolve and change. But with that competition, with those other people out there, those other companies driving that, it, it, it really does strengthen the industry, I believe. And I think, I, I mean, competition is a good thing in my view. I mean, I, I wouldn't want Cisco to be the only option out there for something. I wouldn't want Juniper or HP. I think, I mean, if you're if you're the only person if you're the only company out there, then I anymore you can almost guarantee that it's going to be a few days before somebody else uh, pops before a startup pops up somewhere that's going to challenge you. Now, Eman, you had mentioned that um, some non-Cisco folks, you know, people not affiliated with Cisco or maybe your Cisco competitors, are looking for CCIEs as well, or that that's that's at least come up uh, across your radar. Yeah, it's true. There, um, what you learn and uh, what you have become in order to achieve CCIE certification, um, you know, it it allows folks to see that, you know, one, you've stepped up and you're holding the gold standard when it comes to, um, you know, expertise. Um, But I think uh, the problem right now for Cisco is uh, they need to continue to maintain that early day Feeling. I mean, from back in the days when uh, they were, you know, just beyond being a startup, I mean, they had invested quite heavily in individuals who were thinkers, people that were experimenting, people that were learning, uh, you know, how they could play with what they had in front of them and create. Um, I think at uh, some point, they need to reach a level where they're not just buying companies who did something smarter but they're coming up with those solutions themselves. Uh, the changes in networking and what's going on across the board, I mean, the things that make um, HP split off HPE, um, that bore a Huawei. Um, IBM is fast trying to do something. Um, you know, they almost seem like uh, your, your cousin who's got ADD. Uh, you know, Juniper, I mean, with their appliances and things, they made quite a, you know, a market for themselves and quite a name. Um, but I think that the solution for Cisco will be to reinvest in the future, those individuals who they think can push these things ahead. And and we have a lot of very smart people that are coming through the university systems here in the United States and elsewhere that they could, you know, um, you know, grab up and just give them what they need to keep thinking and lubricate the path. Hmm. Well, what do you guys think about the the open networking trend? Um, so case in point, we got Google, Facebook, Microsoft, admittedly, absolutely huge companies with different sorts of problems and operational needs than the the average company that most of us uh, listening to the show would would identify with, but still, They've gone to a lot of trouble to uh, eliminate vendor lock-in in their ecosystems. They want to really use open source technologies. They uh, are leveraging abstraction layers, for example, switch abstraction interface. They're running uh, at Microsoft. 
uh, for their sonic uh, operating system so that they can run a variety of different switches with different sorts of silicon underneath but still have the same interface into that gear. Um, and I, I, the trend here that I'm spotting is, at least under these uh, amongst these huge players that buy lots and lots of hardware, they're trying to make it that the hardware they buy doesn't matter. It's not really a thing. You know, they're worried about you know a specific kind of interface that they use to manage their gear. And as long as the gear that sits underneath it performs at the level they need it to, great. That's what they that's what they want. And that's an interesting trend because you get economies of scale there, especially when you're a, a big buyer like that. Okay, add to that the Open Compute Project. You've got um, now a consortium of companies that are saying, I want to buy OCP spec gear, you know, that and that has it started out with servers and racks and so on, but now it is, of course, in the networking space as well. And there are OCP spec switches. So, okay, all of that is a long setup to a question. Um, does all of that, all of those trends amongst the big players trickle down to the mid-market so that the average company with, you know, 5,000 employees or 2,000 employees goes, oh, it makes sense for me to buy something like that, a network like that, because it's going to be cheaper uh, for me to acquire and uh, and potentially to operate um, or I don't know, like Dustin, the way you put it was like, well, we're a Cisco shop. I mean, does that preclude anybody else? I would say that, I mean, for the most part, as far as us being a Cisco shop, that was just more of a uh, qualifier for my background, I would say. But I I, I don't think that that's necessarily something that, again, isn't going to trickle down in some ways. I don't think you're going to see your your smaller enterprises uh, with several, with anywhere from several hundred to several thousand employees, probably uh, employing any kind of white boxing anytime soon, just because I think there's also a lot of, you need to have a, a high investment into some kind of support, whether you're uh, whether it's going to be internal uh, people supporting that, or you're going to be contracting it out. I mean, you're going to have there. Yeah. The equipment, the initial uh, cost your capex might be a little lower or lower significantly than a Cisco or a Juniper or a HP, but what is your long-term opex going to be? What's your operating cost going to be to support that? Uh, or is it? Or if you are an, or if you are a business who generally, I mean, a lot of your enterprises, they're going to put a switch in, they're going to put a router in, and it's never going to get touched for ten years. I mean, it really, it really is going to mm. depend almost on the on the market. But I think that. Those those things, while they may trickle down, they, your your people who are gonna who are doing the real development and the real uh, the real hands on, like your, like you mentioned, the Google, Facebook, Microsoft, and those companies, they've got, I mean, thousands and thousands of engineers who can who have R and D support to develop these systems, and whether or not they'll then release and, I mean, I'm not. I'm not too familiar with the open source environment as far as those, but if, but if are, are they going to be then supporting or maybe Facebook will come out and say, Hey, we're going to have this router for sale that enterprises can use that's developed on this open source code and we're going to market it. I mean, you never know what, what that's going to be. And that might trickle down and impact Cisco in a way that now some of their customers who are using their equipment are now vendors as well. Well, the support question is an interesting one because what, what you actually end up with is, is that it depends on the vendor. So you have a white box of some kind, some kind of you know, probably Broadcom, 
uh, hardware that you're going to run some sort of network operating system on. And then the support tends to come from the network operating system provider. So you decide, I'm going to use Big Switch Networks and build Big Cloud Fabric. Now, that's not open source. That's something you buy, you know, but you put it and install it on a commodity switch. Who's the throat to choke in that case? That would be Big Switch. You're, you have a, a support relationship with them. Or maybe you bought Big Switch through Dell, who has a, is a reseller. Um, it's Dell hardware with Big Switch on top, and you buy it as a bundle. Well, my understanding from Dell last time I chatted with them, you go to Dell for support. Um, and then if just to speak about Dell for a minute, you've got a bunch of different uh, operating system choices that they will ship you uh, on t- top of that switch. And it becomes an issue of does the operating system do what I want it to do? Um, does it have the feature sets that I need? You know, with Cisco, you always know you can get the feature sets. It's just a license key away if you don't have it today. Yeah. Um, and But then a lot of the other... NOSes that are out there may have been custom built for a particular sort of environment. So it comes down to, does it do what I want? You know, Cumulus Linux being one to uh, stare at is they keep adding new and cool features, then upstreaming them into uh, the Linux kernel as much as the the community will accept them. Uh, I was reading today about uh, VRFs. They've announced a, you know, a, a, a proper VRF implementation that uh, I don't know that it's in the Linux kernel yet, but it sounds like they're heading that way uh, so that you don't have to use network namespaces, which breaks a bunch of things for you. Um, so I guess I, I guess the, the question ultimately is, you know, if we got by the support thing, when it's like, well, I know if I buy Cisco, I can go to TAC. I know if I buy Juniper, I can go to JTAC, you know, and they're first-line support is going to be not very helpful, but I'll at least have something to talk to, a ticket that gets opened and a process that I can follow to hopefully eventually get a resolution to the issue. Um, you know, with some of these others, maybe that's just fear of the unknown. But I think, I, I know from talking to a lot of the startups that are in this space, there is definitely an awareness that support has to happen. Um, but maybe maybe it's still a little bit nascent for a lot of uh, companies. And then, yeah, who wants to do who wants to tread into the unknown and take a chance on something? You know, if, if who wants to save a few thousand bucks today if it's going to cost you, you know, two x that uh, savings tomorrow? Doesn't maybe make sense? I mean, Eman, is, is your clients talk to you? Do you hear um, hear from them that they're looking for some of these you know, open source skills or maybe maybe automation? You know, as a skill, um, you know, things like that that are that kind of imply they're, they're changing how they, they do their world. They're changing how they do operations and, and things are moving into a different direction. Yeah, there's definitely a demand uh, for folks that can script as always, but then uh, having a better understanding of certain programming languages has been, become very important. But, um, you know, I think that we're heading in a direction where almost, everything is going to be provided to you as a service and you're not going to care whether in that service that you've subscribed to whose hardware you're utilizing. Um, you're, you're going to find a time when that's going to limit the, the need for, you know, you know, creating a ticket to fix a problem because these things are happening uh, because of the way they're created uh, in more of an automated fashion. I mean, even the support, I mean, you've got people that are going to be sitting at, at uh, tax and knocks around looking at performance as things are measured by uh, stopwatches and a lot less by the heat generated by a closet. Um, but the demand is is moving in that direction, and you can see it when everyone was, you know, uh, raising a you know a holler about you know SDN 
a mm. few years back and folks were scared that that was going to affect their jobs and they were going to lose their jobs because of this stuff. You know, still that uh, those that shine are still going to be quite gainfully employed. There's always going to need uh, be a need for people that have an understanding within organizations of what's happening, you know, behind the curtain. But uh, yeah, we're headed that way, and we should all embrace it. SDN is in that weird place of making the simple complex and the complex simple all at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> True. Ah, <laughs> uh, oh, oh, SDN. Yeah, where it seems to shine is where um, you've got a solution that's matured to the point where you can rely on it to do what you needed to do without having to troubleshoot why the heck it didn't work that time and then get under the hood where it gets really ugly and complex. I, I mean, the, if you want to just spend time scratching your head, pull up some, uh, some architecture documents from, from the open daylight project, for example, and just look at all the different modules that something goes through to get from a described task that needs to be achieved to an end result that's actually manifested itself as a, as a configured network. And it's, it's mind boggling how any of it works when you look at all the layers and, uh, and different uh, bits of code that have to be used in order to get those things done. It's kind of extraordinary. I, just from a practical standpoint, Dustin, now you mentioned, um, uh, I think we were talking before the show that maybe, uh, you know, Python and automation and stuff like that would be kind of a fun thing for you to get into. I mean, do you see it as being, you know, beyond like a, uh, you know, like a, like a fun thing or a hobby thing and that something that maybe you would use in, uh, in your company that it would maybe solve problems or. Yeah, I absolutely. I mean, I see the, the potential just from, I mean, if you can take things that, right now take several people or several hours to deploy them or to do manually on a network. I mean, even if it's something as simple as kicking out a script that goes out and adds a VLAN or makes a change in BGP across your network, um, I think that that definitely is something that if you can automate it, it should be there. But I think that there's a, there's a caveat to that in that you really need to understand your network and exactly how it's going to respond to that automation. Otherwise, you could be introducing a whole new set of problems by automating something that you don't have a full understanding of, which is where I think things like the CCIE or any kind of certification or just a good knowledge level can't can't be replaced by automation. You can't just automate. Hmm. You can't just type in a program that's going to go out there and build the network. The network has to be built and then you can, or you at least have to know how to design the network and then automate the implementation process. But there still is going to be that component where it's going to be where you're going to need to have the knowledge of how, how, how everything at layer two, layer three, up to layer seven, how everything works together in order to, in order to figure out what you can automate to figure out, can I build an ACI for this? I mean, there's so many things that automation and SDN, I think, can help with. But like you said, it it, it makes the, the, the easy complex and the complex easy. And I think that really is the truth because you really do need to still have that understanding of what's going on. I can give somebody a tool that and tell them, okay, anytime you need to add a VLAN, here's what you use to do that. And it'll go out and add it wherever you need it to. But somebody better understand how it's doing that and, and where it's doing that. So when something goes wrong, you know exactly what's going on as well. Because, there's again, there's going to be that support aspect to it. I don't think that automation is in any way going to 
decrease the amount of engineering jobs out there or decrease this, but I think there is going to be more of an integration into that DevOps area where you're going to have people who need to know both sides. Um, you're probably going to have people who are going to know the programming aspect more and who are going to focus more on that. People are going to know the networking side more, the engineering side more, and then the people kind of in the middle, and then also your designers and architects and all that on both sides as well. I, I can challenge that though a little bit. Um, you know, what if, and, and here's a, here's a very much of a what if scenario. What if the code was so good that in fact you did not need to understand layer two, <clears throat> layer three, how it all integrated and how the routing really worked because it had matured to the point where you could say, yeah, I need a network that does this, or you, it even functions at a higher level where you've got some application that tells the network what it needs and it all just happens. I need it to be secured in this way. I need it to be HIPAA compliant. I need to have multi-tenant separation. Uh, I need it to be able to get to the internet and I need it to be published at this URL. Go, you know, and the software <laughs> makes that all happen, which is a big, that's why I'm saying it's a huge what if scenario because that would be a very significant thing to ask of an automation system, especially in a world where we build all our data centers as snowflakes. Um, you know, until we get to a standardized, oh, I'm going to get up in my soapbox again. Uh, until we get to a place where we standardize that we're building our data centers, I think that makes it very hard for automation ma uh, manufacturers, if you will, vendors, people who are making that sort of software to make such a solution. But, but it does not seem beyond the realm of possibility to me, given enough time where you could have network in a box, so to speak, and making a few assumptions about what programmatic interfaces are available and what capabilities are required and uh, we stop building things like snowflakes, then sure, man, you know, you could just press the button and have it work. And, uh, you know, and in theory, we wouldn't need an engineer waiting in the wings to debug the stupid thing when it all doesn't work right, because it would just work. Maybe I'm kidding myself, eh? Well, no, I, I don't think that that's, uh, that that's uh, out of the realm of possibility, given a certain amount of time that we might not be, that, that we don't come into that sort of thing. Uh, but I think that you still are going to, I think that that may just create an environment where the engineer will become somebody who's more on the design end and is looking into, okay, what do we need to add to the automation? What do we need to account for in how it develops the network? But I think there still has to be, and I mean, unless we're Looking at, I mean, we, we can we can speculate that there's going to be different new protocols and different ways of information getting from point A to point Z, um, and it, it's it's hard to know for sure. But I think that the the engineering mindset, I think that the network engineer will be evolving. I think that I mean, if you look at where where the network engineer was, and I think it also depends on probably the industry and and the environment that you're working on. I mean. Can you automate a lot in a in an environment that doesn't change very much? Sure. If you're if you're looking for something where it's going to be a deploy once and probably never touch for the most part, other than maybe adding some servers or adding some things, and that's even becoming not even used anymore because everybody everything is moving to the cloud. I mean, but if you're in a if you're in a data center architecture or even a, or a service provider architecture where you may need to have more changes more constantly, um, I think that that may be something where you don't see that as much. But even those, I think you can. I think they're moving towards, and I think that it's exciting to see them moving towards seeing what we can automate and see what we can have these massive architectures figure out for us because there's 
there's so much more uh, power in having uh, a centralized architecture that's going out there finding, oh, here's here's problems that you didn't even know existed, and it's going to automatically fix them and automatically change how things are done in the network. And I think that's that's something that we might be moving towards as well as almost like a self-healing or a self-optimizing uh, network. I think mm-hmm. that, that that may even be the direction that automation may be moving into, not just a deployment, but an optimization and uh, and uh, possibly a troubleshooting aspect as well. I think that, but I, I don't think that that's going to take away from the engineering. I think it's just going to evolve the role of the engineer. Um, whether or not that's going to be something I see in my career lifetime, I don't know. Mm. Well, you're busy. You, Come on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Almost You'll, some sort of artificial intelligence. Yeah. Um, but I have a question for the both of you. I mean, you're the guys that have your hands on and getting your hands dirty all the time. Um, what languages do you see the most useful in your day-to-day life when you need to code something? Speaking as somebody who doesn't really do any coding, I think that the one thing that I've seen is Python. I mean, that seems to be as far as where network engineers are, everybody says, oh, if you're a network engineer, you should probably learn Python. So I've, I've, I've kind of gone into the, well, after I get my CCIE, that's something I'd like to look into to see how I could um, bring that into my, into a job environment, into my, um, into my job and possibly make things easier. Are there other options out there? I'm sure there are. Yeah, I'll add to that and say I haven't spent a lot of time with you know, writing scripts and so on either, but what I have worked with is Python. But the reason that I was driven to Python is because as I look at different network projects that are out there and what libraries and packages are available, Python is the common denominator. It's not the only one. I mean, if you're writing uh, some kind of complex network program from from scratch, uh, a lot of people seem to like Go, Golang. Um, but that's... Solving a different set of problems, you know, in in my mind, that's like you're writing a network, not a, you know, a little point solution to do something. You're writing like a more complex program as a package that's going to do something seems to be where Go fits in. You know, to me, Python is like a, a, it's like a utility knife. You can do about anything with it. It doesn't have to run compiled. It runs interpreted. So that saves you a lot of steps. It's kind of, it's quick. It's easy to get at uh, a result. In Python, there's lots of example scripts that are out there. And again, lots of languages or uh, I'm sorry, libraries that have been written for Python that allow you to do programmatic things against the network. So for example, the one I've been reading up on this past week is uh, Pyang Bind. That library um, takes Yang models, a Yang network model, and can turn that model, it'll read that model and turn it into object classes that you can write programmatic uh, commands against and get structured data back, but in a way that references the model. Now you'd have to have a network device that uh, can deal with that, and you have to have. Um, th- there's more to the story than that, but t- just making the point that well, where did that come from? Where did that Yang to object binding tool come uh, come from? Well, it's a library that's available for Python. Um, Napalm, uh, another one, is uh, again for Python. Um, NetMiko, uh, Kirk Byers, well, we, we've talked about that on the show before, but Kirk Byer, uh, Byers library that allows you to get structured data back from, uh, essentially from command line happening in the background is again, available for Python. 
So just so many of the different networking projects that are out there come back to that. It's not the only solution. It's just, it's kind of an easy one to start with at the very least, because there's so much support for it. It's so common. A Juniper's library, PyEZ, uh, again, Python, uh, to interact with the Juniper devices using a netconf on the back end. Not that you'd know it because you're writing it all in Python. Their library takes care of it for you. So, so sorry, a long way to explain, you know, why Python, <laughs> I guess, but, but, but there it is. Yeah. Very good. I was just curious. Now, okay, one last question, guys, before we close here. Dustin, uh, in the last little bit, you you said the C word, cloud. You said uh, <laughs> you mentioned the point that uh, some networks are beginning to be extended up to cloud. From a CCIE perspective, how does that impact things? Because, okay, my education in CCIE is 10 years old now. Cloud wasn't really much of a thing back then, but that was not really discussed. Is that, I mean, how does your CCIE map to you know, a hybrid cloud network where you've got half your stuff living in AWS and half of it living uh, at home in your data center? I would say it's not. I mean, it kind of the point that I've almost tried to push, I think, is I think the CCIE or any kind of getting to that certification, it helps build that mindset of, a, of being able to adapt and to learn new things. I think that the the thing that the, that even if we are moving to more of a cloud environment, the CCIE is somebody who's demonstrated that they have, and, and this is for the most part, this isn't addressing, there are those, I know Iman uh, used the uh, the dumper word, but I think that <laughs> for, for your people who do ha- have taken the time to build that knowledge set, they're, they're showing that they're motivated, that they're people who have learned how to learn. I mean, when you're going to something like a, like a, a Juniper expert level or a Cisco expert level. And a, I hate that word expert as well, because I think that getting to the CCIE or uh, JNCIE or, or any kind of those levels is only the beginning of, of learning. I think it's, it's, it's a, it's a first step in, in getting to places. And I think that having that ability to know how to learn and know how to figure things out, I, th- I think the cloud is where things are moving towards now, but that doesn't mean that 10, 15 years from now, it's not going to be something else. And I think that having the ability to translate those skills on this, that are in whatever CCIE track uh, that you're, that you're uh, going for, if you're in the process of uh, studying or if you have it, I think that having the ability to evolve and change over time is something that even if it is the cloud today or something else tomorrow, I, I don't think that, that it's going to really affect too much of, of, of the skills that are built. That's funny. You, you put it that way. Uh, you know, learning how to learn. I actually just tweeted that. Um, the, the complexity that comes up when you deal with uh, cloud and hybrid networking oftentimes involves overlays and oftentimes involves multi-tenancy. Well, you know, as a part of those overlays. So when you begin to get into what that network looks like, an overlay and an underlay match, you know, IPsec tunnels or multi-point GRE tunnels with IPsec encryption that are stitching all these environments together, um, you know, MPLS possibly, all depending on your choice of how you're stitching all of these environments together, what you're using. If you have a CCIE level background, you're looking at those technologies and the complexity of them and going... Oh yeah, I've kind of seen something like this before. Even if you haven't seen exactly that, you've seen something like it before. And so you're not intimidated because after a while, it all starts to look kind of the same. Oh, VXLAN, that's more or less just another tunnel. 
only it's it, it does a different kind of end cap. It's got a different kind of header value. Got it. Okay, I got the rules. I know how this works, and we're off. And then off you go. Not so bad, as opposed to oh my gosh, I've never seen this before. What is this? What is this mystical thing? Please teach me, Oracle. And you know that yeah. kind of you don't have that problem because you you kind of been there before, even if it's not that specifically. So, yeah, that's a really really valid point you make. So. Well, guys, we're coming up, we're on an hour here. We've been chatting about this for a long time. So, um, so what do you say we wrap it up and, and go around the table and uh, let folks know where they can follow you and any parting thoughts that you might have, uh, E-Man starting with you. Oh, uh, well, I, I do kind of a good job of people, uh, getting people to notice me. <laughs> yes, um, you do. <laughs> <laughs> I want folks to know that I'm not as crazy as some of the things I post. Um, <laughs> and my police record really is very short. Um, if you're not living in an environment now that's hybrid cloud, then you're probably still in a cave. You need to get ready for that. Find a mentor, uh, Dustin, uh, and anyone that's, uh, that's pursuing CCIE certification. If you are a CCIE, be a mentor. We need you. The, the crowd out here is hungry for knowledge, and they're hungry for their own oracles. Be an oracle. Be somebody's hero. Be a mentor. And... I really appreciate this, Ethan. Thanks so much for inviting me on today. Well, yeah. If someone wants to follow you, like you on Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, and uh, and if someone wants to, maybe they're a CCIE who's who's looking for an agent. Is there? Uh, are you available? Yes, you can Google uh, CCIE agent as one word, and you'll find my find me on Twitter that way. You'll find me on Skype that way. You'll find me on Facebook and LinkedIn. Um, but I am the CCIE agent. I'm the only one. I made it up myself. But if you want to, uh, you know, look look for me directly, you can look for the CCIE flyer, which is still out there, and it's in need of a little bit more shaking up and freshening up again this month. But uh, I'm accessible. I'm always here to help you with a resume, help you with your career, and never forget, I'm the only person who's running a CCIE dating service. <laughs> Thanks, E-Man. You've been a big part of the community for a very long time. We really appreciate that. It's been a privilege to know you for as long as I have. And Dustin, what about you? How can people follow you? Uh, thanks, Ethan, uh, for having me on the show today. I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, Ema and I have really enjoyed uh, talking to both of you. Uh, you can reach me. Uh, I'm on Twitter at net underscore introvert. And uh, I have a blog out there as well at networkintrovert.com. So feel free to check me out on either one of those. Thanks a lot, guys. And uh, to you, the audience, thanks for listening to Packet Pushers today. You can find this and many more fine, free technical podcasts along with our community blog at packetpushers.net. Follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. You can find us on LinkedIn, like us on Facebook, rate us on iTunes. And hey, if you go up to packetpushers.net, we've got a new link up there, AMA, Ask Me Anything, Ask Us Anything. You uh, submit there just your first name and a question, and uh, we'll put a show together based around the questions that you folks submit. And we would uh, enjoy hearing from you. We've already gotten a bunch of submissions in and are looking for more. Last but not least, remember that too much technology would never be enough.